0: Well, that, I mean, that sounds reasonable to me. You're
1: just generally negative.
0: I, I have personally not been described that way. I think that's more you.
1: I have described you as negative every chance I've gotten.
0: Wow. Well, that's incredibly negative of you, which makes it a double negative, which makes me positive. So we did it, people. <laughs> High five. I'm back in the clear. Oh, Hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever podcast. My serial number is 00110. I, I mean, my name is Ned. It's Ned, and I am a real human person and have been around for thousands of solar cycles. I mean, years, years. Uh, like all the other real human persons who can walk and talk and irradiate comestibles with their upgraded eye modules, with me is Chris, who is. Here. Uh,
1: oh.
0: Physically here. We are in the same room. Literally here. Yes. Ecumenically the, here. You know, literally. Artistically here? Definitely not. Literally is now in the dictionary where literally can also mean figuratively. Yep. That happened that's a, a while thing. ago. It but did it is happen. It's still a upsetting. I feel like I need to bring it up just like Pluto. That's like fair. it's It's just one of those things that some people are going to, you know, that's the hill they're going to die on. Pluto, I don't even know if it has hills. I'm not even sure it's a circle. Right, but, uh, I mean, if you're looking at the the typography of literally... I mean, there's some peaks and valleys. Doesn't typography mean font? Yes. Oh, so that's... And I'm a font of knowledge. This is starting terribly. (laughs) You mean great. Let's talk about some tech garbage. (laughs) Oh, so... I was going to talk about the earnings from the big cloud providers and some other tech vendors, and then I realized I was a whole week off. Nice. Yeah. I'm going around looking for all these earning reports, and I'm like, oh, that's not that. Oh, that is literally today's date, you know, the day that we're recording <laughs> Well, actually, no, not even the day we're recording. This is all happening um, in a few days after we're recording when this publishes. So so really, my question is, why did we not just pivot into wild speculation? Uh, we That
1: actually is coming lightning round. I have been taking the Jim Kramer class on financial management, and I have a
0: number of very loud opinions. <laughs> if you can break something with a baseball bat, then we're there. <laughs> right. Well, Microsoft and Alphabet, their earnings come out um, on the day this episode publishes, and then Amazon comes two days after that, after the market closes, because that's how they do. Classy. Classy. <laughs> Now you know about what next week's episode is going to be about. So plan accordingly. I suggest black tie and movie theater popcorn. But I'll also accept rodeo clown garments with deviled eggs. But don't, you know, don't half ass it. Deviled eggs, they need to be taken they need to be super seriously. Whole assed, if you will. <laughs> um, Lederhosen is grounds for immediate expulsion. Controversial, but I'll allow it this season. Okay. If you bring me latkes, I might reconsider. Might. Thinking about the three clouds and their earnings report got me thinking about multi-cloud. That's when you have many clouds. Yes, but it's more than just that. Uh, This is a topic that has been beaten to death, revived, killed again, sold for parts, reassembled, Frankenstein, burned on a pyre to Viking music, and yet... With Easter barely in the rear, rear view mirror, Multicloud will rise again and be more popular than Jesus. So it's like Bruce Campbell in a number of ways. I was going to say the Beatles, but I, I will accept either one. Chins could kill. My goodness. All right. So what is there new to say about Multicloud? Perhaps nothing, but I'm going to say things anyway. As is your right. Yes. If you're any in any reasonably sized organization... You're guaranteed to be multi-cloud, right? Unintentionally, in many cases. Yes. Well, what I'm going to say is that multi-cloud is an illusion and doesn't mean anything. Just like literally. Yes. Are you confused? Always. Good. Let's begin. All right. So I came up with some fundamental questions, and you might be getting the sense that I've been watching a lot of Philosophy Tube, and you would be correct. I was wondering why you were wearing a cardigan. Well, I, yes. The bubble pipe, though, nice touch. Thanks. Uh, I I thought about going corn cob, but that seemed a little below me, or above you, or next to me, in between. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> so, I wanted to address some fundamental questions about multi-cloud, starting with. When someone says they are using multi-cloud, what do they actually mean by that? And we're going to spend a lot of time on that question because it actually informs the next two questions, which is when someone says that their product is multi-cloud, what does that mean? And we'll round it out with, is multi-cloud a positive or negative thing? So here's a problem I have before we even start. Yes. Is my immediate answer to all three of those questions. Yes. Is it depends. (laughs) It does. But we're going to get into why and how it depends. Ah. Okay. So that's my goal. Let's start with the first question. What does it mean for an organization to be multi-cloud? You would think that it simply means they are using cloud services from more than one vendor. Easy peasy. We're done. Hooray. That was a short episode. Go eat my kava bowl salad, whatever you ordered me. But wait, what does it mean to use a cloud service?
1: So we're immediately into have you ever really looked at your hands territory.
0: (laughs) Not far up. I mean, they're all veiny, man. Um, Well, mine are because genetics. But anyway, um, a good example. uh, Well, We can break cloud services into, like, three different models. We'll start with the SaaS model, which is basically running an off-the-shelf application that is now hosted by somebody else. Gmail. Yeah, great example. Then there are in-house applications that are developed by your organization. So these are not off-the-shelf. These are ones that you have written yourself for whatever is important to your business. There's some blurring of lines between the two SaaS and and you know writing your own Salesforce.com is a good example. Someone someone in the uh, Pluralsight community has written several courses on Salesforce.com, which I thought was like what? And then she was making claims that it should be part of the developer and infrastructure track, and I'm like what? And then I actually looked into it, and there is a whole robust infrastructure hosting and programming aspect of Salesforce.com that has nothing to do with CRM. Correct. And I was flummoxed and immediately backtracked on all of my strong opinions regarding that. But um, to, so to back up a little bit, a good example of an off-the-shelf application that most folks now consume in the SaaS model is Microsoft Exchange. And I know this because I used to be an Exchange administrator And later on, I worked at a consulting company doing Exchange upgrades. What I learned is that running Microsoft Exchange at any kind of scale requires a tremendous amount of knowledge around storage, compute, and networking, plus virtualization and systems design. And you can't forget your password. And that's all before you actually get to running the Exchange itself. This is just the nuts and bolts. (laughs) There's a database in there somewhere. Allegedly. It's a Jet database. When Microsoft launched Exchange Online, I could not migrate fast enough. All that infrastructure I had to worry about became somebody else's problem, along with patching and running Exchange itself. Which is really the secret sauce. Yes. Because all of that complaining that you just did disappeared. Essentially, yes. I mean, it's all completely new complaining. But oh, I mean, there's, there's never any lack of things to complain about when it comes to Exchange. Variety, after all, being the spice of life. It is but the point is there's really no value add to run exchange or any of these other off-the-shelf applications on-prem and there's a tremendous downside in terms of cost and time and that's what they call in the industry undifferentiated heavy lifting don't do it no you might sprain something i did sprain something mostly my back um So if you're talking about multi-cloud and you mean using multiple SaaS platforms, then all you're really saying is that you're using multiple off-the-shelf applications. That's not new, and it's not interesting. All businesses use multiple off-the-shelf applications to get their work done. That's not true. I use Exchange for literally—oh, man. (laughs) That's not true. I use Excel for literally everything. You know, I've seen some Excel things where I would believe it. There's a mini golf game in Excel. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Have seen it. Set the record. Sure you did. Pre- I mean, prepared. my
1: own personal record, Okay, but it's well, still a
0: record. If it's written down somewhere, then it's technically a record. Yes. You can see what I printed out on the refrigerator right now, sir. I'm impressed you spent the money to get it laser engraved. <laughs> you know, things remembered. They they charge by the letter. I even had friend. it autographed by Dave Excel himself. <laughs> he's a hard man to get in touch with. You have to send him uh, a VLOOKUP and all right, well, this is falling apart quickly <laughs> moving on. So the fact that you're no longer hosting the infrastructure or managing the app directly are good things. Definitely. And the reason SAS has exploded in the last 10 years. So let's move on to the other class of applications, which are applications you've developed yourself. Now, there's three possible interpretations of multi-cloud in this case. Three. You could mean that you're running your apps in multiple clouds with each app hosted by a single cloud provider. You could mean you're running the same apps in multiple cloud providers. Or you could mean you've stretched components of a single app across multiple cloud providers. All three of these scenarios exist. And even though people like to crap on them, all three are valid for different scenarios but like different quantities of validity no i perfectly valid if you have a use case that requires stretching your app across two different cloud providers and it's legitimate and helps you make money then it's okay fair enough okay i still don't think it should be a one zero type of discussion but fair enough there's gray area and there's arguments to be made in favor of one design over the other, and that is what happens in the architecture design phase of an application. Which is what we in the business will also refer to as the fun part. <laughs> fun for somebody, I'm sure. Oh. So let's start with these three scenarios. The first one, you're using multiple clouds, but each app is running in a single provider. It's the most common of all of these Could be that your line of business apps are just managed by different teams who each chose to go with a different cloud provider. Or, as is very common, you have acquired or been acquired or merged with a company that hosted their apps in, say, AWS, and you're hosting all of your apps in Azure. Now that you're one entity, you are multi-cloud.
1: I've also seen, especially in this case, so one thing about Azure is that they've got Office 365, Mm -hmm. So a company could conceivably run all their Microsoft
0: stuff in Office 365 and all of their applications in AWS. Right. But we're focusing on the scenario where these are in-house apps and not worried about SaaS. So they didn't write Exchange? Well, I mean, Microsoft wrote Exchange. No, they didn't. Talk to Jim Exchange (laughs) and you will find out. So what are the operational concerns with this first scenario? First, there is the question of inter-app communication. When everything was in the same data center back in the old dark days, apps could talk to each other with minimal latency and there were no um, egress charges? Important to remember for cost management. (laughs) Just a little bit. That's no longer the case when you have apps in multiple cloud providers or even multiple regions of the same cloud provider or even multiple availability zones <laughs> the same cloud provider in some cases your mileage may vary depending on the cloud provider right so ideally you'd like to ch- group apps that are chatty with each other in the same region same provider if pro- if possible but otherwise what we have is fundamentally a networking challenge i need app a to talk to app b and that's a challenge that is pretty simple to solve Before cloud, lots of organizations had multiple data centers, which is not really all that different from multiple clouds. From a networking perspective, you put together a wide area network with something like MPLS and moved on your merry way. And then MPLS
1: broke and everyone blamed everyone else. The network team, of course, was
0: already on vacation. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So you put a ticket in JIRA, which is also down Ooh, topical humor. (laughs) Bam. Got him. All right, so if this is your challenge, the thing that you had to solve, it was solved way before multi-cloud became the buzzword du jour. The other operational concern is the different administrative and monitoring models from each public cloud provider. Again, this challenge is not new. It's just a different flavor of a problem we've had forever. I hearken it back to the great divide between Linux and Windows teams at any organization I've ever consulted with. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty normal. The Linux people know what they're doing, and the Windows team is also employed. (laughs) They like clicky ops. (laughs) I say this with love and as someone who is a Windows administrator. So (laughs) fundamentally, each team had their own administrative model and set of tools they like to use. When you migrate to the cloud, those tools, they might get replaced with the native tools of the cloud of your choice, but the challenge is essentially the same. This is a problem that existed before multi-cloud was never fully solved and never will be. Amen. Okay. So that's scenario one. Scenario two, where you are running the same app across multiple clouds. Now that introduces a new wrinkle that wasn't there before. In our first scenario, the individual app teams and their ops support were still restricted to a single cloud provider. They didn't need to have multi-cloud knowledge to run their application. If the app was in Azure and the team knew how to operate applications in Azure, they were good to go. Good job, team. You get a pat on the back. Gold star. There's lots of gold stars in Azure. I don't know if you've seen them. Can't tell if you're kidding or not. No one can. (laughs) (laughs) Now we have an app that is running in both AWS and Azure, and eh, maybe GCP. Who knows? And the team supporting the app needs to know both clouds. Is there a situation similar to this pre-multi-cloud? I think you can guess. No. You're wrong. Ah. <laughs> the answer, of course, is yes! Imagine you are running two instances of an application, one in data center A, and the other in data center B. Data Center A has all Hewlett-Packard Enterprise Compute, EMC storage, and Cisco networking. Data center B was part of an acquisition and uses Dell Compute, NetApp storage, and Extreme Networking. The brand, not the networking, isn't that extreme. Right, you don't have like blonde tips. It's extreme! not extreme. It's not chugging, you know, Mountain Dew Code Red and eating uh, what are those disgusting rolled-up chips that have way too much seasoning on them? Not important. Moving You're on. You're absolutely on your own on this one. Okay, they're Fuego. That's all I know. All right, so both. Data centers are also running VMware for the virtualization platform. Well, guess what? 99% of virtualized applications are not going to give a rat's ass about what hardware they're running on because VMware is hiding that part from them. So your operational teams responsible for the infrastructure need to present similar performance profiles and abstractions to VMware. But for the application owners, they can mostly not care. Give them a fleet of VMs in each data center and let them do their thing. Right. And this is where you would have localized systems teams.
1: Right. Yes. I can handle setting up the operating system, connecting it to the SAN,
0: making it available to VMware. Then it's the application team's problem. Exactly. So the app team just puts in a ticket. I need a VM with this performance characteristics, this storage profile. The machine is generated by the operational team, or maybe they even have some fancy automation setup and the app team does not care because they get the machine they need. That was the brilliant thing about VMware. Multi-cloud is basically the same problem, but now your operation teams aren't managing hardware, they're managing APIs. Assuming you're sticking to common IaaS components or using containers, again, the app team doesn't really need to care about the platform. You have a platform team, and they do the hard work of presenting a common abstraction layer. Aiding in this effort is the rise of Kubernetes and managing all the Kate's options in the public cloud providers. So that becomes the platform team's problem. They just need to present a common version of Kubernetes across the various clouds you might be consuming. You can think of it as VMware in the cloud, although VMware (laughs) might want a word with me about that. I, I hear distant knocking. I'm going to ignore it. So here's an abstraction layer that is 99% equivalent across the clouds, and where it's different, that is the platform team's problem to ease the app team's pain. But the same idea is that 1% interaction
1: is minimal and not constant.
0: Right. There's always going to be that one weird app that does care about the hardware, that's demanding that you give it, in the old VMware days, like an RDM. So Oracle. Yes. And Oracle is still going to be a pain in the ass trying to run it up in the cloud, Ooh, now the Oracle and VMware death
1: squads are fighting in the
0: parking lot. (laughs) This is fascinating, people. Oh, it's red on green. I don't know who's going to win, but it looks like Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) The third scenario, that of splitting a single app across multiple providers, is still pretty unusual and seems to be driven by the need to use a specialized offering across the clouds. So you might run the bulk of your application, say, in GCP on uh, GKE, their Kubernetes flavor, but you might have some machine learning components that would benefit from being offloaded into SageMaker and AWS. There are two challenges here. One is the networking problem all over again. Your app components need to chat across providers, Not, not a really difficult challenge. But your app team needs to be involved and understand the nuances of latency and bandwidth, which they often don't. Right. So they get real mad when the database server, which is now 250 milliseconds away from the app server, doesn't seem to be responding as quickly. But I have a 10 megabyte pipe. What's the problem? And we all hold our head in our hands and cry a little bit. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so that is one challenge, just the networking thing. The other is the cost element. Moving data sets around the public cloud providers is not going to be cheap since each one charges egress fees. The second challenge is the fact that the app team has broken out of the platform team's abstractions now, and now the app team needs to be well-versed in how the cloud providers work. Is any of this new? Eh, not really. I've seen similar situations where there was a HPC cluster in one data center and an application that needed to leverage it in another, same networking challenges, same application development challenges. Right, and what you're really talking about is increasing the level of difficulty. Yes.
1: Understanding the basics of IaaS in the cloud or even rolling out a Kubernetes cluster while challenging is not rocket science. No. Dealing with the complex interactions, especially latency-based ones, and dealing with
0: specialized services like SageMaker (laughs) is very different. Very different. And this, again, gets back to the fact that if you have a valid business use case where this is a thing you really need, then you're going to figure it out. But the juice has to be worth the squeeze, right? Right. All right. So (laughs) now that we've been through all of this... If we look at all the different challenges presented by running multi-cloud, the thing that strikes me most clearly is that none of this is new. Right. The labels have changed, but the moves have stayed the same. Exactly. All of these are challenges we've encountered before, and the teams who solved those challenges, they didn't disappear. They're still there. They need to update their skills for the managed environment made available by the cloud, but they already know how to solve these problems at a theoretical level. Right. Which is why it's important to train and upskill your teams. You terrible managers, you. And really, that's... I mean,
1: just a bit of an aside. Understanding the theoretical level is almost more important. Because you can learn how to move differently. Yes. You push buttons A, B, and C in AWS. But in GCP, you push buttons D, E, and F. Mm -hmm. As long as you know what you're doing and why, you can learn where
0: the different buttons are. you have to enable the API first. Of course you do. (laughs) But yeah, point taken... Getting the theoretical knowledge down is always going to be more difficult, and it's the th- it's the reason that we value enterprise architects is because they've been through it right more than once, and they know the common patterns to look for, him, look for, and they don't really care about getting down in the muck of the obst- below the abstraction layer. That's somebody else's problem, but they needed to know at a high level how to stitch these things together. Right, this thing needs that thing. is going to connect this way. It's going to be great. Peace out. Yeah, exactly. And that's why we get paid the big money. We yeah. do. Mm, no, we used to. <laughs> <sighs> now we're finally ready to address the second question. Yes, that was all just the first question. <laughs> but this is going to be a much shorter. When a product claims to be multi-cloud, what does that actually mean? The answer for this one is going to be very succinct. It mean it doesn't mean anything. Or more accurately, it is so vague and nebulous that it effectively has no meaning. Right. It looks great on a marketing slide. And this is what we call marketing, people. (laughs) Uh, So your monitoring product or your backup solution is multi-cloud. What kind of multi-cloud are we talking about? Which of the multi-cloud challenges does your solution address? Which multi-cloud operational model are you following? Simply put, Multi-cloud is nebulous and vague as a term, so all multi-cloud software solutions suffer the same fate. If you need a solution to your problem, ignore the buzzwords and focus on the challenge you actually need to solve. See question 1. <laughs> all right, the third question is multi-cloud a negative or a positive? I think we're ready to answer that. And I hope by now you realize how pointless the question is. I don't even remember the question. <laughs> Fair enough. It's a bit like asking if water is good or bad. A drink when you're thirsty is good. Yay! Pouring rain when you're walking the dog, not great. <sighs> Stranded in the middle of the Arctic Ocean without a life jacket, that's Wilson. That's bad. In case, in case you weren't sure, it's bad. Which brings up a fourth question that I didn't even realize we had to ask. Does multi-cloud exist? Certainly, there are many situations where you're using multiple cloud providers. And, but does the concept of multi-cloud exist in a way that's useful? Based on what we just talked about, I'd say the answer is mostly no. Or at least it has no more utility than saying your organization is multi-application or multi-vendor. Of course you are! but that doesn't provide any useful information to you or me. Listen, we love our new and shiny terms in tech. They give us a sense of purposeful advancement. We're progressing. It's newer, better, faster. Under closer inspection, most of these words are a distinction without a difference. The spoon does not exist, and neither
1: does multi-cloud. Except when it does.
0: Except it doesn't. It depends. <laughs> Damn it. Well, we've summarized the entire discussion in two words. Well done, everybody. <laughs> should we lightning round? We should round the lightning.
1: All right. Ubuntu releases latest long-term release version, 22.04, Jammy Jellyfish. Ugh. Well, the Fine. Alliter- the alliteration is a bit forced, but I have to admit, the background image on the desktop is pretty cool. Ooh. According to Ubuntu, Ubuntu is the world's number one when it comes to desktop Linux, and they do quite well in the server space, too, if Ubuntu has a say for themselves, and they do. And long-term releases, LTRs, are a big deal. In short, these are the ones that get the longest sustained support. As such, they only occur every other year. This year, the big features are around graphics performance, a new version of the Wayland Window Manager, Gnome Desktop. Yes, the Window Manager and the Desktop Manager are two different things. Don't worry about it. And the default themes on the front end. Also, massive upgrades to desktop performance provided from the back end. Graphics cards and power management are listed at up to two times better for similar systems. Compatible systems, by the way, include the lowest end Raspberry Pis, the two gigabyte models. Wow. So that's cool. Incidentally, Windows users who interact with Ubuntu via WSL will be seeing the new stuff, too. Woo! Overall, the cool kids seem to really love this update. The more cautious kids, not naming names here, Chris. will probably wait for the first minor release, 22.04.01, scheduled to be out in early August. Will this be the year of the Linux
0: desktop? Just like every year. As it was? It depends. <laughs> so shall it be. $500 billion in cloud spend... I'm still working in my basement. Gartner, that venerable research firm that your company probably pays gobs of money to so they can tell you what you already know, predicts that spending on public cloud will come close to $500 billion in this, the year of our Lord, 2022. I know it's crazy to think that spending on public cloud continues to grow during a, um, global pandemic. Interestingly, once you actually dig into the numbers, the biggest growth areas are for IaaS and Desktop as a Service. Again, this might be linked to people working remotely due to this, uh, Chris, have you heard about this thing? A world record size panini? Was it a Cuban sandwich? Because otherwise I'm not interested. I know it's, it's weird that a sandwich could cause all this fuss, but here we are. What's funny about the report is that despite the brouhaha about advanced cloud services like machine learning and containerization, these technologies represent a much smaller fraction of the pie than marketing would have you believe. King of the hill, and given our earlier discussion of multi-cloud, this shouldn't surprise anyone, is SaaS. IaaS is a distant second, with PaaS claiming bronze. My main takeaway is that while cloud spending is increasing, The focus continues to be an outsourcing of undifferentiated services to a SaaS provider. If you're not running EKS with machine learning on AWS backed by Lambda and RDS for 90% of your apps today, don't worry, you're in good company. I mean, that's how I schedule my Roomba, so.
1: Of course. Apple released Thunderbird Thunderbird. 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 <laughs> Apple has gotten into the car industry, <laughs> which is probably going to be a headline in like two years. Anyway, Apple released Thunderbolt 4 cables while USB C quietly wept. <sighs> okay, so I know everyone's just dying to have a deep dive on computer cables, but since this is the lightning round, I'm going to have to keep it short. Thunderbolt is Apple's juiced up version of USB C. It uses the same connector, but it does more things. Thunderbolt 4 came out and does even more, more things. Trouble is that doing more, more things means you need more, more power, especially at a distance. Distance, in this case, being defined as approximately two feet, when a passive cable will no longer cut it and everything gets way more expensive. Because of course it does. And no pun intended, you have to keep your wires from being crossed signal amplifiers, gold and silver-wrapped individual cables and pins, literally baking microcontrollers into the cable's lead to do signal reconstruction and more dustproofing than the plastic on your grandmother's couch. This leads to bonkers cables that can do things like transfer 100 watts of power, daisy-chain 4K monitors, and maintain data transfer of 40 gigs per second without burning your house down. All for the low, low price of, oh dear, $159 for the 3-meter cable. I did hear that Monster is putting out a version in purple, though, that is $500, and that one comes with rust-proofing.
0: Damn it, I was going to make a Monster Cable joke and you beat me to it. Oh, I definitely bought Monster Cables when I was like 13 from Circuit City. You bought them before you got here? Don't lie to the people. Fine. Holocore is not a new EDM genre for nihilists. Boots and pants and boots and pants and boots and pants and Nietzsche, 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 Nietzsche! Comcast is trying to increase the available bandwidth on their fiber backhauls by introducing Holocore fiber, which is based on the simple fact that light travels faster through air than glass. Working with their Holocore project partner, Luminensity, nope, Luminicity? Keep going, you're almost there. Was Lumensity taken? Because it's a lot easier to say. They were able to deliver 400 gigabits per second over a 40 kilometer connection in our hometown of Philadelphia. You wouldn't think that glass would slow down the speed of light, but it does. Light traveling through glass in fiber cable is about 50% slower than light traveling through air. By having air channels embedded in their fiber cables, The latency of signals traveling through the medium is reduced by about 47%. Luminicity is also working with BT in the UK to bring HoloCore to their infrastructure. The company is targeting data centers, financial companies, and cell tower operators in the short term. Longer term, the goal is to bring symmetric 10 gigabit per second speeds to the masses by replacing existing fiber with HoloCore. 10G to my house? I might switch to Comcast for that, but probably not, you know, because they're awful. The government's Hack
1: the DHS program bears significantly buggy fruit. From the unnecessarily gross metaphor department, the Department of Homeland Security opened a public bug hunting program in December of 2021, which offered between $500 and $5,000 bonuses for identified bugs. This follows in the success of bug bounty programs by private companies such as Microsoft and Google. This week, Hack the DHS program announced its current results, and they are quite resulting. 450 researchers have identified 122 vulnerabilities, 27 of those being rated as critical. Hmm. Some of these bugs were, of course, associated with the Log4J bug, and it's highly likely that many, if not all of them, would have gone undetected, and thus unpatched, otherwise. The vulnerabilities have since been patched, thus protecting DHS from a wide variety of hacks. So, this is a project that is yet another example of how security needs to be aggressively public. Hopefully, next on the government's docket, an open-source program to identify and weed out all the other hacks that trouble it you know, the ones that run
0: for public office. hey <laughs> Boom, got him. That's really going to be the fly in their ointment. Hey, speaking of which, waiter, there's a fly in my console service. Courtesy of the SRE Weekly blog, comes this tale of using HashiCorp's console at scale to track services running globally on the fly.io services. For those not familiar with Fly.io, they offer the ability to run containers as firecracker VMs across the world with built-in CDN and global load balancing. They maintain edge routing to ensure requests are sent to the closest available instance of a customer service and do so in the face of constantly changing network health, node health, and instance health. They selected console to assist with the tracking of service health across their locations. But they began to run into limitations on how console is structured and how the API is written. The initial answer was to adopt software shims to mitigate the problems. The longer solution was to replace some of console's functionality with totally new software, some of which was written internally. The story is one of a company stretching its technology to the limit and trying to adapt on the fly when they exceeded those limits and the tech broke. It's a refreshing and transparent glimpse into a successful company that's not yet dealing with Google scale problems, but isn't an SMB anymore. And as a shameless plug, the founder of Fly.io was on my other podcast, Day2Cloud, last year. So you can check that out if you want to know more about the inner workings of their system. It was a really cool episode i didn't th- listen of course you didn't they're doing some really neat things with ipv6 to give every single tenant their own address space nice because you can do that because ipv6 is preposterously huge infinite i mean it infinitely might as- huge fine fine i would like a trillion addresses please sold nice 20 cents too expensive Hey, well, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now you can go sit on the couch, eat a chili dog, and play Battletoads for the rest of the day. Good luck on that speed cycle level. I hope you kept your game genie around. You can find me or Chris on Twitter, at ned1313 and at haner80, respectively. Or follow the show if that's the kind of thing you're into. It's chaos underscore lever, you weirdo. Show notes are available at ChaosLever.com if you like reading things, which you shouldn't. Podcasts, once again, for another week, continue to be better than reading in every conceivable possible way. Literally. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now.